0: Welcome to episode 49 of the Web 2.0 show, HashRocket. In this episode, we're interviewing Obi Fernandez of HashRocket fame. Uh, I know some of you may have heard of him. He's uh, written the book The Rails Way. Uh, He runs the firm HashRocket, which is down in um, Jacksonville, Florida. It's a a medium-sized rails firm. Maybe, maybe even largish. Uh, I guess in the rails industry, I think they have twenty-something employees. Um, he's, a, you know, he's a published author. He started with ThoughtWorks and uh, moved on from there to uh, do his own thing. So uh, we wanted to talk to him about running a business and I don't know, just. Uh, just just talk about some of the things that are involved with that do you have anything to add there Adam
1: no you were just going on so well I didn't want to interrupt you man I feel like I was listening to the president or something the the president yeah it was fantastic you were just like you know up there on your podium it was fantastic really good job man awesome
0: duck and shoes
1: duck and shoes (laughs) (laughs) no it was awesome to talk to Obi because uh, you know I think the his direction and where 321 launch came from and what the rescue missions about i just think a lot of his uh a lot of his philosophies in business are really good and i think it's nice to expose that to to our audience
0: yeah definitely i mean obviously we're, we're big believers mm-hmm. in the 321 launch we participated in the first rails rumble
1: that's right
0: which is what's inspired 321 launch for for ob and his company and then uh we even participated in the last one and you know, the first one we took home first place, Tasty Planner, the uh, the last one we took home Jotley, uh, we took home uh, Best Design, so, I don't know, we've been fairly happy with it, I think uh, it's an interesting model, and I know you and I talk all the time, Adam, we'd love to be able to replicate that, and, and uh, you know, somehow create things in a weekend. Right. It's kind of an awesome thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the Rails Rumble is a lot of fun to participate in. I, I can see that for sure. And three, two, one launch is built on that idea, that same philosophy. So, you know, it, it makes sense to turn that into a product that clients can easily wrap a dollar amount around, a time fixation, and you know, you bring the bring together the right team and in a weekend with a great plan, you can do pretty much anything. Yeah,
0: it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So this episode uh-huh. is sponsored by uh, Engine Yard. They can help you with all your Rails hosting needs. They are a high-end Rails hosting business. Um, if you're interested in uh, top-notch performance Rails hosting, they're definitely the place to go. Our other sponsor for this episode is Peepcode. Uh, Peepcode is is the awesome. If you're not familiar with them, they've uh, they sponsored our last, uh, or I guess two episodes ago. They uh, they produce quality screencasts uh, centered around programming, mostly Rails and Ruby, um, but they are starting to branch out here and there. Um, I know there's I don't I don't think they've released it yet, but there's talk of them doing a, still doing a Cocoa uh, video. They recently did one that covered Git, so if you're looking for some kind of source code management. Uh, tools. They have a great one on Git. They even uh, recently released one on uh, productivity as a programmer and uh, some easy steps that you can take to ensure that you know you're being productive with your time and uh, you know you're getting things done. That's at peepcode.com.
1: Peepcode.com. <laughs> <coughs> So I guess what is it on with the episode, or you wanna you wanna babble on a bit more? Nah,
0: no, I don't I don't think they like when we babble.
1: So we're gonna be done babbling. Yep. Right on.
0: On with the episode. Later. So today we have Obi Fernandez with us. Uh, I guess of Hashrocket fame. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Obi, uh, and uh, what Hashrocket is.
2: Uh, sure. Of uh, we are. Known as the happiest little rail shop in Florida for a number of reasons, <laughs> but uh, basically we're all about doing uh, really high-quality software work, and we're based down here at the beach uh, in Jacksonville, and really loving what we're doing. Um, the company is kind of grew out of, an, of, of my leaving ThoughtWorks and going independent and then realizing that uh, with the pending success of my book, The Rails Way, I would probably be in a good position to start a consulting company. So uh, we started planning it about, say, nine months ago, as my book was being released, and uh, got it officially launched at the beginning of the year. So we do um, we do pr- pretty straightforward, you know, web custom web development. Uh, no small you know, kind of commercial websites or things like that, mostly custom web 2.0 style development and product development for people. Uh, one of our biggest clients is Reuters. I guess they're called Thompson Reuters now, um, where we do kind of some enterprisey sort of uh, Ruby work. And we also have uh, productized offerings, uh, the first of which is called 321 Launch. And we recently raised the price to 40000 for that. And basically it buys you a month-long of our development services uh, with a very specific project plan that we've found works uh, very well for, for getting startup projects off the ground. And uh, we also do rescue missions, which um, we've done a number of projects where we've come come in after another team has um, both in greenfield situations and just ongoing um Maintenance of long-lived projects, uh, where the existing team has just royally screwed things up, or uh, is not living up to the expectations uh, that were set, and starting with a code audit, uh, which is just a you know an examination of what they got, and and starting to lay a roadmap, uh, we we do a bit of, of helping people get back on track. So it's an important part of our brand and our offering as well. Obviously ties back into uh, the railway and. and the fact that you know myself and others on my team are, are viewed as experts—is that what you had in mind?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good.
1: I think I think a lot of people were really interested in the three-two-one launch, and, and especially the rescue mission before. Mm-hmm. I know that was a that was a big headline for when you guys got started. Yeah, what uh, what gave you the idea for the three-two-one launch? Where did that sort of come from?
2: Uh, it's f- Interesting that you ask. Uh, Rails Rumble, which is a, a competition, a Rails coding competition that uh, I guess is, is taking place annually since there's another one this year. Yeah. But we, we, um, I was working with a team down here in Florida uh, building a Web 2.0-ish kind of uh, Yellow Pages site, and we decided to enter Rails Rumble. Um, so we, we had a really good time. You know, we, we fielded a team, four people, and had a really great time doing so. Um, and when we reflected on, on that experience, you know, we decided that giving ourselves extreme time constraints was a really, really powerful way to bring out our best performance. Right. So, and, and that's nothing new. I mean, it's, not, it's, it's nothing that hasn't been covered uh, in other arenas and, you know, p- people have written books on the subject, but... We thought, you know, combine the fact that um, this thought of t approaching zero, t uh, representing development time, uh, and with Rails and the ecosystem of plugins that we have, and, and the fact that lots of things, lots of the common tasks are very little effort to get done, you you can definitely shrink the construction time for a I would say a small scope project to a, to a few days if you have the right okay. people course, you know, the right people are, is, is, always a requirement, but if, if you do have a good team of people, uh, I would say four at most, they can probably, they can pretty much do anything within a, two or three days. Now it's going to be rough, you know, the, the, the lack of sleep, <laughs> lack yeah. of
1: sleep and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah,
2: definitely. Lack of, lack of sleep is bad. Um, and you know, there's just, there's just so, there's just so many bugs and such that you can find within a three day window. Right. Um, but anyway, going back to your original question, which was how, how did we think of doing three to the answer is, you know, we did this Rails Rumble experience, and we said, "Wow, that's that's a really powerful way of working." What what can we do to actually have a product offering for startups where there's a fixed price, and we we minimize their financial exposure and maximize the kind of productivity we can get. So. At the beginning, it started as okay we'll just do your app in three days and we actually we've always kind of seen it as a month effort, but um, it at first, we were front loading uh, like design and prep kind of time, and we right. kind of left it open ended right so your your thir- and our pricing was thirty thousand from the start, so your thirty thousand was buying the three days of effort. And we very quickly realized that just three days is not going to cut it. You you can't like you can't come up with a finished product that it, that a client is going to be willing to you know part with thirty thousand dollars for in three days. It, it's just you know it's not possible. Yeah, uh, bottleneck okay.
1: center too. You still have like you have to push back stuff that the client. They've got to approve things, and there's got to be some collaboration there. So it's they've got to yeah. there's got to be a big investment on their side too. As well as your team's, right?
2: Exactly. the And it, it's just, you know, we very quickly figured out that wasn't going to work. So the question is, all right, well, what could work while still preserving the, you know, the initial point, which was to compress the time frame? Uh, because if we just expanded the timeout, then it just becomes a normal development pro- project. Right. What, cool. we, what we ended up doing uh, is is breaking it apart into three phases. Um, first of all, a prerequisite is you have to be working with a designer. And we, we've been lucky enough to strike up uh, a partnership with EngineWorks, who's also here in Jacksonville. And uh, a, they're a bunch of ta- you know, really talented develop, uh, designers and information architects, and they really know what they're doing. So they can supply us with really high-quality mock-ups and uh, flow diagrams and basically everything we need to build a, an app. Because uh, anyone who has experience in this business knows that the hardest part is deciding what to build. Right. You know, People come to us with ideas all the time, and it's like, well, uh, I just told a guy today, actually. Uh, so he, you know, he's got an idea. He's really excited about it. Um, may or may not have the money. Um, but I said, are you working with a designer yet? And he said, well, um, no, so, uh, hadn't, hadn't really thought of that yet said, so, okay, well first thing you gotta do is work with designer. And EngineWorks works with us and they, they have a 10K package, you know, ten K package, ten thousand US, where they do everything that's necessary to to front load a three two one. He's like, Wow, it's a lot of money, um, you know, for design. It's like, Well, actually, you know, that that's cheap. That's basically because EngineWorks and us work together and we know exactly what we need from each other. Um What's really expensive is doing it like a hundred percent. I would call it a hundred percent agile, where there's no design up front, and you kind of like start the development team with a minimal set of, of ideas or designs that you're going to uh, evolve as you go about. So either either you you go that hundred percent agile route with just one developer, or doing it for yourself, or you know a very cheap team, or you have a lot of money to spend, and unbelievably. All my time at ThoughtWorks, you know, where we normally didn't take projects that were under a quarter million dollars total budget, you had that a lot. Basically, you know, a company would say, okay, we need to fix this process or we need to, you know, we have this idea we want to come up with. And they wouldn't do, like, any sort of prep design before bringing us in. We basically would start out and say, okay, we're going to do all the analysis and we're going to start development right up front. Yeah, if you have, a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend, you can do that. But then the project takes, you know, nine months right. to a year or two years to go and people change their minds and stakeholders change their minds and budgets change and it's like all this strife.
1: Too much, too much overhead on that kind of project. So basically three, two, one solves that by compressing the timeline, fixing the budget and really attacking the project with a great plan.
2: Yeah, it's all about, it's about minimizing risk and basically narrowing the focus laser like, you know, down to, okay, we want you to figure out. What your first beta version, you know, your first beta release of your product, what you want that to be. We will give input into that process, but we are not the people that are going to define that for you. We want you to work with really experienced uh, designers that have, you know, kind of product consulting and branding experience, and just get get that ready to go, get that package ready to go, and then. Just getting back to the 3-2-1 project plan, essentially there's three phases. The first phase is the first week, and the stakeho- the main stakeholder, the client, works with the lead developer for one week. They go through a process called story carding. And during story carding, what we do is t- uh, basically analyze the, the output of the design phase and break it apart into atomic units that can be executed. Uh, all those atomic units are assigned a story point value, which is a, an effort estimate, and it varies uh, anywhere from one to two to four story points. And we, we create a what's called a backlog of all these stories that we think we want to tackle. Uh, towards the end of that process, towards the end of that week, we also go ahead and work with the client to prioritize, okay, which are the most technically risky, which are the most important to you in terms of business value. And this is not, you know, the story carding and, and defining requirements this way is not something that we invented. It's, it's kind of standard agile uh, extreme programming or scrum practice. So we go through a week of that, uh, put, put it all into a tool called Pivotal Tracker, uh, which maybe we can talk a little bit about later. But basically it's a very good story card um, management tool. And the understanding, the explicit understanding, it's even contractual with the client, is that what we define here, this is is kind of your entire vision, but you have to understand that we may or may not achieve your entire vision. Throughout the process, you know, it's it's a fixed price, fixed time contract, therefore we're going to do the best that we can, we're going to work with you along the way to prioritize what we get done, but... The scope, the exact scope, is going to vary. And sometimes people say, well, you know, who who's going to agree to that? Well, the, the, the point is, you know, before we agree to even go forward with the 3 to one contracting and, and, you know, to accept someone as a client, I have to have a gut feel that we can actually get the project done. All right. So there definitely is a conversation back and forth where we kind of narrow down the scope to something that we feel is manageable to get done to a satisfactory quality level. Um, You guys know about, like, the four variables of software development? You know, the equation, time, um, scope, um, you know, quality, and price. Time, I guess, goes with price, but... You know, you, you, could, you can only constrain a couple of those variables, and then the other one's going to have to to float. So if you, well, yeah. if you, you know... If it goes you back you, to
1: the, the basics of you can either have cheap, fast, or, you know, good quality. You can't have all three, so it's sort of the same same, uh, yeah. same thing, basically.
2: Yeah, so so basically what we've done here is constrain the time um, that's spent. That we we always strive to work to a high-quality level, so the scope's going to have to vary. Um, so the second week, basically after all the story cards are defined, we fly in a uh, group of Rails All Stars. We, we call them guest stars internally, but you know, in the, the last one we did, we brought in uh, Rick Bradley and his crew from Nashville, OGC, um, you know, OG Consulting. Basically, bring those guys in, pair them up with our lead developer, and then they go through the three-day, you know, the actual three-to-one. Where they go, they work for three days, and it, it's not like working twenty-four hour days or anything like that. We actually work pretty reasonable hours, and maintain a suspa- uh, sustain, you know, sustainable pace for the course of that week. Right. But the point is to be very, very focused on productivity that week and make sure that all parts of the system get attention. That that we actually, you know, cover all of the, the feature footprint of the app and and not rat-hole on any particular feature, not give one feature, you know, particular attention to the exclusion of others. And having that time constraint, the fact that the, those guys are only going to be available for three days really helps. Um, bring the guest stars, then. I mean, we get cross-pollination with outside developers. Uh, we get, um, the, you know, we can bring the best people who, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to hire permanently for, for cost reasons, and uh, in a very practical manner, it forces the model. You know, it's very important, uh, just as a general rule in business, to set yourself up to follow your own practice. So one of the things we found out early on is when using internal people to do the 3-to-1 processes, those people are always around. So it's very hard to force something to three days if the people are not going to go anywhere after the three days are gone. Just human nature is, it means that it's very easy to just go, okay, well, let's go home early, Tonight and you know we'll just wrap this Up tomorrow and then tomorrow turns into the Next day right? So on and so forth so Go through that one week and then just Kind of to wrap it up because we have been talking for a long time The um, We have two more weeks And that, that was a very important piece of the puzzle That kind of fell into place after we did this A couple of times is that You have to have An additional time period to finish out The acceptance of, of, the, of the project that 's your buffer for any features that didn't get completed and for doing polishing uh, polishing of the app and basically getting it ready for release so at that point, my lead developer on the three two one works with a rotating um, cast of internal developers that we have you know whoever whoever's available uh, pairs with them and basically finishes out the app for the remaining two weeks.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So you you don't actually launch at the end of the three days. You you just get it near completion and then kind of finish up for two weeks after.
2: The general rule is that we launch to staging. You know, we we launch to some sort of internal environment. Um, the the type of scope that we've been getting on these projects is such that you know you can stinging. You know, on on some of them. You could theoretically have launched, you know, like to an alpha Uh user base after the end of the three days. Um, But, you know, you need those two days, those two weeks to kind of just, you know, finish everything. So in reality, it's a, you know, it's a three-day, it's a three-week development process, but it's segmented in such a way to, you know, maximize the developer, the the specific developer teams that we have. It's not a constant um, size team throughout those three weeks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't um it's interesting to hear the kind of the comparison because we participated in the rumble last year and uh, I don't we'll probably participate again this year. But when we were doing Tasty Planner, you know, we we got everyone together on Base Camp and did a lot of sketching ahead of time and, you know, put things together. And uh, you know, I think that kind of stuff is really beneficial. Like we had a list we could refer back to of kind of like the core features we wanted to see in and then the other niceties you know if we had time we could work on <clears throat> so it's definitely interesting to kind of hear that comparison
2: yeah you can't decide you can't decide what you're going to build in those three days
0: yeah yeah you have to do it ahead of time for sure
1: right and so setting setting for failure could be that
0: yeah for sure
1: Uh,
2: To be clear, though, I mean, you know, I have a long history in in the agile community. I started the extreme programming group in in Atlanta in 2000. It was one of the first user groups in the country, uh, you know, for extreme programming. I haven't given up those roots. I'm not talking about, you know, big design up front, BDUF, what what people refer to as BDUF, uh, because we don't actually go through and set out all the technical architecture up front and then build to spec. Um, but I think that the design especially for web based stuff mm-hmm. you know the design has to be in place you have to have all of the key pages laid out and you have to have your navigation spec'd out and you have you have to have all the key visual items in place before you start an effort like that uh, otherwise you know i 'm i 'm not knocking normal more normal type development processes where you know you take Two or three months to to do something like this And you just kind of go through a very iterative Evolving the design It's just that those are are more expensive Efforts
0: Yeah, well and I I think it definitely Becomes interesting because like With Tasty Planner You know, we we focused on something that was Usable and looked Decent and and, you know People wouldn't wouldn't walk away from Whereas I I think if you take a, a Two month timeline or a six month Timeline you almost start to build things that may not even be that useful. You don't, you know, you don't know what a user wants until you launch it. So right. it's kind of hard when you're just playing, you know, guess. So
2: yeah, a lot, a lot of the things that we live by are, you know, just taking agile principles and, and pushing them to their logical conclusion. So you know, release often, release early, it becomes release in three days. Right. Um,
0: Sounds like the storm's going to get you there, Obi.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're Storm definitely in? we're definitely into our summer uh, rainy season here.
1: Yeah. Every, every, every day at 3 o'clock, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> it's every day at 3 o'clock, regardless, it was going to rain for at least one half hour.
2: Yeah, but it, it's, it's sunny the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you guys have quite a large team at Hash Rocket now, don't you? How, yeah. How big is the team?
2: Um, last count, we had 14 billable resources and an assortment of, of support people. The the Hashrocket family, including admin and and um, you know some like part time assistants and things, are it, it is about 22 23 people. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty large group. It's it, it's actually for me, it's a it's it's a fairly big weight of responsibility. Uh, you know to to be in a position where a lot of people are are depending on you for your you know for their livelihood i mean obviously it's a team effort but um part of what's made you know my life with with hash rocket really exciting and, and made the whole effort really interesting and challenging is just this it's completely different than what i've done before i mean before i've always been it's just been about me you know i 've been dependent on myself and and basically uh, other than family you know they 're the only ones relying on me in this case the The work is really varied and, and different and just kind of comes at me whether I want it or not every day but there's you know there 's a pretty serious weight of responsibility on top of that.
1: Sometimes to be uh, you know a really good leader though, is that you have to actually force yourself into a situation where you have to become that leader. So it probably has helped you quite a bit to force yourself into that kind of scenario.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't. Um, I, I've talked about you know living with uh, attention deficit disorder and things like that. I'm pretty sure I've, written, I've blogged about it in the past. It's uh i i got diagnosed with attention de- deficit disorder at some point and uh as an adult uh I'm talking probably f- 5 6 years ago and uh y- you know it's is really great for creativity and i i don't even see it necessarily as a disorder i just see it as a different way of thinking um but when you when you put yourself in a position of responsibility where things are just coming at you and you there's things that have to get done no matter what it really helps you focus and, and bear down the task at hand and you know in, in a sense grow up I mean part part of what I define as you know in my personal journey as becoming an adult and just kind of succeeding and pushing forward has been has had a lot to do with responsibility and figuring out that there are things that have to be done no matter you know matter whether they're boring or not if that makes any sense but you know over the course of you know the last six months especially in growing the business there's that that's been a tremendous factor um in in our success is just the fact that you know having the resources and every day you know sitting down and even if it wasn't the most fun thing to do dealing with personnel issues and hiring and making really tough decisions as concerns clients and things like that but just it's like a fire hose just comes at you and you have to deal with it you know you realize that if you if you duck out all hell's going to break loose and everything's going to go to crap. And, you know, when it's something that you've worked so hard for and that you have so much, uh, you know, hopes and, and dreams pinned on, then you just focus and you do it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is it, you You do one interesting thing that I, I haven't seen a lot of people do, and that's the fact that you like to see everyone that you hire move to Jacksonville. What What's the reasoning behind that, and do you think that that's working out well for you?
2: Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely putting limits on our growth. Uh, that's something I acknowledge right now. But there's, there's a number of factors in play. For one, at ThoughtWorks, we were distributed all over the world. Uh, Just ThoughtWorks US was distributed over, I think, five or six home office locations in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and then there were all these people like me that were in cities that didn't have home offices, you know, uh, Atlanta and, uh, and secondary cities, and we all traveled all the time. So even though that had its, you know, its kind of cool aspects as far as adventure and, you know, being away from home and, and always meeting new people and, and moving around, you definitely had really big challenges in terms of maintaining a consistent Um, company culture, and as far as maintaining a consistent level of competence. Um, So, I mean, you guys have heard horror stories about big consulting companies like Accenture, right? Where, you know, they got big traveling teams of consultants, and they charge, you know, millions of dollars, and they produce crap. I mean, the, the big problem is with everyone traveling around, you have a real hard time You know, maintain with the quality control as far as your people. You know, so one of the factors is having everyone here, everyone having direct access to everyone means that we can all grow together and we can all keep ourselves in line. You know, it becomes very very easy to know if someone is not performing, and we can we can deal with it, and to also to acknowledge and make sure that the people that are performing are kept happy. You know, because it's, it's all too typical in, in traveling consultants or, or organizations or where people work remotely, that one player on the team is carrying the load for everyone else, and there's no visibility. Management has no real visibility into the fact that that's happening, and then that person becomes disgruntled over time, and then you lose them. So it, there's just I just see too many challenges and too many pitfalls to you know to using that model where people are remote or. Um, you know, distributed geographically. Um, but another thing too is, you know, we're we're big believers in pair programming. Pair programming, we work in pairs all the time, and it, it's you know, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to go into all the benefits of pair programming here. I mean, definitely the, the listeners that are interested in it, uh, that are not familiar with it, should should Google the topic because there's just reams and reams of material. I've personally talked about peer programming as a way of knowledge sharing, as a way of mentoring each other, as a way of ensuring productivity because you have to be focused all the time. And it's also... I recently read a really good blog post that highlighted how uh, there's benefits in terms of improving your emotional uh, quotient. You know, this concept of EQ uh, or emotional intelligence. You have to be... Very, uh, you have to be very metacognizant, and you have to be very aware of your own emotions and keep them in check when, when you're pair programming. And the type of zone that you get into, and the type of productivity you achieve with pair programming, is very different, and I think more special than the kind of zone or flow that you get into as an individual. So, working remotely and trying to pair remotely just doesn't cut it. You know, it's, it's something that people will argue on, you know, ad infinitum. But you know, I've been there. I've I've done both ways. I've tried both ways. It just we find that that nothing can replace the sitting next to someone and working on the same code.
1: So, uh, since we're talking about staffing and managing people and you know creating a good culture, how do you choose the people that you hire?
0: Like, what's the process? Can you give us some? Yeah. You cut out there, Adam.
1: At the end. Oh, sorry. Just you know, can you give us some insight to your hiring process? You know, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, to, to some degree, uh, you know, the fact that we have this guest star uh, program in place is, is really great because it means that we get people coming in on a regular basis. So, for instance, um, our latest hires were Rain Hendricks, um, Tim Pope, and Zach Inglis. They were three, uh, well, you know, guest stars that came in to work on a three two one and never left. <laughs> um Nothing can replace actually working with someone before you decide that you want to hire them. So what we've done in every case that I can think of is have that person come in and go through just the trial period. Now, whether it's paid or it's not really kind of depends on the circumstance. But the point is to, to get the person in for a period of a week or two and to have, just to see how they fit into the team um, by getting them to work on real projects. That's why I say that, you know, the circumstance varies on, on whether it's paid or not. In some cases, we've, we've had internal projects where we've had the person come in and say, look, uh, we can't afford to pay on this, you know, but it's kind of up to you. If you want to come in and work with us, I mean, you're definitely going to learn something and take it away from, from the situation, and that's worked out. Um, and then the other, you know, situation has been where, you know, we, we need the help anyway, and there's very little risk in bringing that person in, since we work in a pair programming situation all the time. Then it's very easy to integrate newcomers like that, because you just pair them up with someone that's already familiar with the work that needs to be done.
1: going yeah. to be uh, difficult, though, with uh, with people having to be in Jacksonville. That's got to limit your, you know, that's got to limit your intake of, you know, superstar talent, right? Uh,
2: it it does, but you know, in a way, we're. I'm um I'm biasing the selection criteria towards the kind of culture that I want to create. Um, we we are on the beach. I mean, we I'm literally turning around in my seat right now and looking out benefits. over the and, and looking out <laughs> over the ocean. You know, um, I can. I can tell you, you know, I can, I can assure you that living at the beach and having these great condos that we live in and having guest accommodations on the beach and, you know, having this culture where we have a lot of fun and, and you know, relax a lot is very conducive to recruiting, you know, for the type of person that has the flexibility to, you know, up and move over to the beach and who's into that um, is going to be a very attractive option. There have also been people that have gone, man, I've, you know, I wish I had other things to offer other than working here because you know they don't have the ability to, to relocate. You know, I've had plenty. I can, would probably be able to rattle off half a dozen names that your listeners would be familiar with that I've talked to about coming down here, and they're like, look, I would love to work for HashRocket, but I can't move you know we're too settled we own a house we have family here wherever here is and it's like well sorry (laughs) i guess it's not going to work then um but like i said you know i'm self-selecting towards what kind of people towards the kind of people that are more comfortable with change in their life um not that there's anything wrong with stability but you know it's more of an adventure picking up and moving it's uh you know you would typically have to be younger a little bit more inclined to change a little bit more you know um okay with instability which you have instability in a startup situation anyway so why not self-select towards people that you know are comfortable with that sort of thing
1: what's the what's the average age
2: that's uh that's an interesting question i i a blind guess would be like around twenty-seven, or so, maybe twenty-five. Uh, so, somewhere in there, we we lucked out. We we hired uh, well, two guys. We we hired two senior guys that did not have a really deep uh, Ruby background but who were really experienced developers and they live out here at the beach they li- they li- literally were already living out here and commuting into the city of Jacksonville which is a crappy typical you know like 30 40 minute commute because the beach is an outlying suburb of Jacksonville which is a huge metro area so if you're if you're willing to open Your doors to people that don't have a lot of Ruby experience already and up-train them into it, then you actually have a lot more options than than you, you might think at first.
1: Well, I don't think you have to actually build, you know, bring somebody in right from the community already. It's, like you said, bringing somebody in who's got some talent and shows they want to grow, bring them in, train them up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... These guys actually already had an interest in Ruby, and we met them through the Ruby user group, which we helped co-found. So um, I think nowadays the Ruby Jacks, uh user group gets, on average, maybe 25 to 30 people a month, and HashRocket is at this point, you know, like half or more on any given month of the people that are there. So um You know, we definitely, starting a user group in your area, if there isn't one, is actually a really, really good recruiting tool because the people that are motivated to come out and and participate and support the user group are generally going to be really good people that you want to hire anyway. At least in the beginning, you know.
0: Yeah. So, I know you guys have uh, clean undies right now, but when are we going to see, like, the first real kind of major web service come out of Mm HashRocket?
2: It's it's not something we're focused on right now. Uh, we have one internal project. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's really important to have something going on internally that people can work on, uh, because you know there's invariably la- you know time between projects where you need you need to give someone some, something to work on for a couple weeks. So we do have some internal initiatives. Uh, that we're working on, but it's not our focus. There's just so much money to be made right now in consulting and I'm growing a team, you know, I'm growing a team and I have varying skill levels on board. So they're, you know, like, like two guys that are really, really good, really experienced, have a lot of dedication and a lot of, uh, generalist kind of knowledge, you know, from design to system and stuff. They can and do launch web pro- uh, you know, products all the time on, um, you know, and, and we have a lot of success stories like that, right, even individuals. And they do, they can do it on a shoestring because it's for themselves. But what I very quickly found out, despite initial plans to do products, is that once you start hiring people on, on payroll and you start having – you know, a monthly uh, payroll commitment of over a hundred thousand dollars. You can't spend a lot of time messing around with you know little Web two O product initiatives that don't necessarily have a you know business plan behind them. It's just unfeasible. So we, you know, we, we about three months in, I would say, we had a staff meeting where. Uh, HashRocket had a little crisis uh, you know moment and you know pause and self reflection and as a group we kind of said okay uh, you know half of you here were hired with the explicit purpose of working on products like Clean On These and hey that's my login and things like that and the other half of you were hired knowing that we're a consulting company and that's pretty much what we do so we got to all get on the same page and the same page that we got on was that we were more we were happier basically limiting for now our potential to do product work in order to move forward with doing work for clients and you know getting paid and using that as our vehicle to get established. Of course, once you know we have a, once we have a bunch of uh, cash stored up and you know a lot of goodwill and, and some surplus uh, resources, then sky's the limit, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. So, I guess, speaking of, you know, cash buildup, how, how do you find clients? How do you, I guess, how do you interest them? How do you keep them interested? I mean, do, do they stick around for a long time? How does that work?
2: It's, I, I don't know, it's definitely an art form. Uh, you know, the book really helps. I mean, you flip the rails way over, and on the back it says OB is... Um, CTO founder, or something like that, of uh, Hashrocket, and that gets some people to call. Um, I am blessed with a lot of really good visibility and a, and a pretty decent reputation online uh, because I've been blogging for years and I have really good, you know, Google rank, and you know that definitely draws some people in and. At this point, uh, I'd really say it's you know starting to become a heavy word of mouth sort of thing. Um, you know, we are we've done work for probably fifteen or more clients already, so it's it's really starting to get to the point where the word of mouth really really starts contributing to the amount of leads that come in. You know, so and so said you did a good job for them. I want you to to work on it. Um, having a really good web presence is also important, and, and the guys at EngineWorks did a phenomenal job of you know, crafting a, a website for us that really communicated what we were about, and that got the, you know, the message across uh, clearly. Um, you know, the fact that we have the product, I think it's really, really important. It's something I just talked about in Ruby Fringe. It's really important to take what you do and craft it into some sort of product, line that you can very easily and concisely describe to your clients. So that's what we do with the three, two, one and the rescue missions. We actually do and have done all sorts of other things, right? Like I I do code audits personally, uh, where for $1,000, I'll spend four hours with you or looking at your code and give you a written one or two page report on the status of that code and where you should go. That is an offering that I do, and you know, that's pretty much our low-end minimum sort of client commitment. And uh, we also have ongoing project work with, as I mentioned earlier, Reuters, and that's a you know, pretty big revenue stream for us on a monthly basis. And it's pretty traditional kind of consulting, uh, you know, project staffing. And uh, we've done three, we're have three; doing a ton of three-two-ones, and we also have done projects that have lasted three months. You know, like in the hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget range. So we do it all, but it's really important, I think, from a marketing standpoint, to to put out a couple of your key offerings and describe them in such a way that it's easy to talk to them about clients. Then they come in, you know, I can't tell I can't tell you how many people come in and say, Oh, I'm interested in your three two one and it actually turns out that, you know, they're they're more like in the hundred and fifty thousand dollar range with what they want to do and they're fine with it. You know.
1: The product allows you to establish a place to, to start from? It's, it's a, a starting
2: point, yeah. Right. Instead yeah. of just going out, the alternative is to go out and just say, you know, we're the best, call us, and we'll discuss what we can do. It's a little too open-ended. It doesn't give people the hook because everyone says they're the best. You know, so how do you decide?
1: You also attend a lot of events too, right? You're pretty social. Like we saw yeah. you at uh, Web2O Expo and Future of Web Apps is where you initially met, well, at least where I initially met you at.
2: Yeah, uh, Absolutely. You know, I'm the the chief marketing uh, vehicle for Hash Hashrocket. Uh, the guys say that it's a cult of Obi. You know, it's and I'm cool, I'm cool with that. You know, ThoughtWorks is a cult of Roy. He's not quite as visible now. You know, like ten or fifteen years later, uh, but the founder slash primary owner of ThoughtWorks is this guy named Roy, who is just this, you know, larger than life personality, travels all around the world to conferences and to client sites and, you know, made ThoughtWorks in his image, you know, kind of as an enthusiastic, progressive kind of organization. And that is very much in the Hashrocket DNA, you know, that I'm really good friends with Roy to this day. And, you know, was very good friends with him, worked very closely with him when I was at ThoughtWorks. And that's part of what I took away when I started HashRocket is that it's very important to be out there, to be an extrovert, to be charismatic, and to get the message out in a a very interesting and winning kind of way. Everyone wants to work with a winner. So being out there and talking about the experiences that I have and talking about all the fun that we have and talking about the big wins that we have with clients and these progressive causes – You know, everything. I I don't want anyone to take away that this is in a cynical kind of way. It's not just a raw capitalist sort of, you know, I'm I'm scheming to do this. It's translating basically all my enthusiasm for all these progressive, fun, you know, forward thinking kind of uh, movements and and efforts, everything that I do in my personal life, and basically translating that into concrete things like conference talks, like this podcast uh, appearance, like, Writing articles for you know websites and blogging and the book projects that I work on, basically looking at the entire, everything that I do, ev- that's related to my career into Hashrocket and pulling it all in, in a holistic way, towards success. You know, just pointing it towards success. If you if you look at if you you know you can't do a project like this and just have it be a very small portion of your life, just your job. In general, I don't like working with people whose Work is just their job, you know. There's that passion element that that needs to be there if you're going to do really, really great work. So, just just being the embodiment of that, and you know, trying to to let that show wherever I go is, is a very important part of, of how we succeed.
1: When we were in uh, Florida, though. the The word or the phrase was personal brand. Business mm-hmm. so all about Obie's personal brand. Can uh, can you maybe rewind maybe four years or a few years ago and give us like four critical things that sort of establish your personal brand?
2: Uh, sure. So if I rewind four years, I don't know. You what? kind of fade, you kind of faded out there.
0: Yeah. What
1: was Sorry. that? Sorry. Just you know, just kind of uh, talk about the 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 critical things that have established your personal brand.
2: Sure. Um, so I joined ThoughtWorks. Um, ThoughtWorks I always saw as um, as a company that's fueled by a lot of individual larger-than-life personalities. And when I started, I was definitely not one of those. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I did climb the ladder real quickly. And because you know, part of the reason I went to ThoughtWorks was that I wanted to I wanted to be the next Martin Fowler. You know, I want I want to be the next guy that's really out there and pushing the agenda forward and, and, you know, defining the way that software gets done. So big dreams, um, and looking for avenues to accomplish them. So ThoughtWorks was definitely a, you know, very important avenue. Um, around the same time I started blogging really heavily. I mean, I, I already had somewhat of a reputation in the Java world. I mean, I got my first bio blog, um, Biling or whatever you want to call it, um, pretty soon after joining ThoughtWorks, um, trying to remember what it was about. It may may have been when I first got started with Rails, but, um, you know, within Java circles, I had a little bit of a reputation just kind of for being a bad boy and, you know, being on the cutting edge and, you know, not necessarily taking the status quo and stuff like that, but on a very, very small and localized kind of basis. So, I, I don't know. You have to you have to start small and work your way up. I mean, definitely, I was known within the Atlanta uh, Java user group before I was ever known in any sort of uh, you know broader sphere. Um, but the blogging had a lot to do with it. And then a couple years after that, you know, basically signing up with Addison Wesley to to work on the Rails book, um, turning that into the series editorship, turning that into you know, working with, with really, really talented authors and things like that. I,
0: mean, it, so I, I, guess... I don't
2: know. It's, it's a very personal thing, right? You know, everyone finds a way to express their ambition, and then it just kind of, uh, you know, finding the avenues to express that is, is very dependent on your context and where you live and, what co- you know, what company you work for and things like that.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think... And maybe it, it would make more sense if, if maybe we clarified where some of our questions come from. We just started a business with Handcrafted um, and we're struggling to find clients and get our name out there. And for someone in a similar situation, what kind of advice would you give them to get their, their business kind of going and, and off the ground and hopefully successful? Um,
2: it, you know, the number one advice I can give, it, it actually, and it has to be the first advice no matter what, is you have to do really great work. So I, I, I know it almost sounds cliched and it almost sounds too obvious, but you have to be of a mindset that you're going to do extraordinary work and that you're going to do better than average, better than everyone else that's out there. You need to express that to your clients and you need to express that to yourselves on a regular basis. And to me that's one of the number one factors, you know, if if you're not doing extraordinary work, if you're not working harder and better than your competition, then I think it's kind of useless to look for other ways to get ahead. You know, it's 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 almost dishonest. So it has to start with doing really really high quality work. Um, and, w- and we're not in a field that lends itself very well to commoditization, if you know what I mean. You know, because there are different business models. You can go, like, the, a commodity way, do it, you know, faster, cheaper um, sort of way. That's sort the, of where
1: the company name came from. Like, uh, we founded Handcrafted. The name was spawned from our undying need to to write beautiful, mm-hmm. extensive a good code, and and I think that it's that extends itself from you know what you said was strive for excellence, you know quality, right. and that's sort of the foundation point in which Handcrafted is being founded on is that we want to, just you know we want to build projects and applications for clients that are founded on on you know beautiful code, and that's sort of, yeah. of the foundation that we're coming from.
2: Okay, so that so that's the foundation, and then. the next step is getting some visibility for that. So, you know, you have, you have to have some sort of vehicle for getting attention, uh, whether that's a blog, you know, that, that you're posting examples to. So you have to have some way of getting visibility into the work that you do because everyone thinks they do great work. Everyone, you know, claims to do great work. A very small minority of those people claiming it actually do great work. Right. And it's, you don't actually. I, I don't think you can actually be super objective about how great your work is un, until you get, you know, ob- objective feedback from either the market or other people that you bring in to work with you. So, um, you know, blogging is really important. And at my peak, I was blogging almost every day, probably an average of more than once a day. Um, that's one way to really build readership. Um, so. I don't know if the situation is is different now, but you know, certainly a few years ago when I was you know investing heavily in the time to blog, uh, I was just looking for anything of value and anything that I could show of my own work, of value to put out there on the blog and to really get it out there that I knew what I was doing. And you know, you, you guys might have more flexibility than your typical consultant. Uh, or employee has to actually do that for themselves you know, in a personal brand kind of way. Because I know that at ThoughtWorks, I got in trouble various times for saying too much. You know, clients typically value their confidentiality, and they don't like you blogging. They don't like you showing any of the code that you wrote for them. They don't like you talking about the project. They don't like you, you know, discussing challenges and how you overcame them. Um, and that was definitely a big, you know, a big problem, so... You know, essentially setting aside the time and investing heavily in in the information that you give back to the community via your blog and participation in, in online forums and things like that is definitely a big part you know those are the seeds that get planted for future success that's,
0: that's good advice
2: you guys actually do that to some extent with uh, your, your you know your work to a podcast right I mean i
0: yeah, that, that was definitely um, something that, you know, when Chris and I started it way back when, we kind of wanted to become involved in the community and get to know people and, and kind of get our name out there at the same time Right. And, and learn interesting things. And, you know, Adam and I have tried to continue on with that and take it to the next level.
2: Yeah, I think I think the danger with, or not, not danger, maybe danger is a little too severe, the the pr- the conflict with, you know, let's say running a popular podcast in a journalist role, because you guys are the hosts, and wanting to get on the other side, which is, you know, to, to be the work producers and to, to have the reputation, is that, you know, just just interacting and hobnobbing with a lot of high-profile people and, you know, people who have good reputations doesn't necessarily rub off on you. You know, it's good. it's really good from a professional sense to have those connections and things like that, but... You know, maybe a parallel effort where you actually discuss the kind of challenges that you have on your, pro- you know, on your own projects, and you guys become the focus of the show. Uh, you know, and the the providers of the meat for the show, uh, would, you know, would be a good a, a good way to expand in- into uh, you know the kind of marketing that I'm talking about.
1: That's, I guess, that's where a lot of our questions do stem from too. Like you'll hear Josh, mm-hmm. or I, uh, pinpoint back to like Tasty Planner or right. Involved in it and discuss challenges or pain points we've faced, and you know one specific that you know you encouraged me to get involved with was was like Hamel. I've recently used Hamil. It, it my views are crazy clean. I can't even take how clean they are, and the, the output code is awesome. So I mean, I I remember talking to you in Florida about uh, you know you create you know you evangelized big time on Hamel, right? And you know I think the the one thing that's got me on the fence of whether or not it makes sense to really push forward and, and do you know, go back and convert projects to Hamil if uh, if the time constraints are there or whatever is that um, what are the what are the possible i don't know, I guess what are the dangers of going all Hamill? Are, are there any
2: uh, i don't well there's a couple of different questions there right <laughs> yeah. uh, I tend to ask like
1: fifty questions in one sometimes. <laughs>
2: okay. Uh, so number one, should you go back and convert old uh, older projects or legacy projects to Hamel? And the answer is that if 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 your stakeholders and your development team can tolerate having a mixed set of you know Herb and, and Hamel views, then yes, convert them as time permits. Um, but I've actually turned down work because the client didn't want to use Hamil, as, as stupid as that may sound. And admittedly, it was a symptom. It was more I turned it down more because it was a symptom of the type of client they were kind of they were going to be. Right. But but it did hinge on the on a discussion where they said, "Well, what if we said that we don't want you to use Hamil? <laughs> and out there. Hampton is laughing about this, you know, I'm sure I just told him at Ruby Fringe about this story, but I, I said, sorry, <laughs> it's either Hamill or you don't work with us because, you know, the fact is, it's that good. So yeah, I, I mean, you're not going to get any, anything but, you know, full on praise for Hamel and, and, you know, encouragement to convert everything that you have over to Hamill. I, for me, it, I just see it as the the most direct way of having a a, a low friction. How should I call it? Like a good mental map between your styling and your view structure, your your semantic uh, markup. Right. You know, with with Herb, you're kind of doing mental backflips all the time. With any sort of traditional markup, you're doing mental backflips, and the emphasis is not on the classes and IDs. Whereas with Hamill, you're always thinking in a sem- you know about your semantic structure, and you're always focused on what your class and IDs are, and you don't have to do those backflips when you go to apply your CSS styling to it. So it, I just find that that just streamlines the process so much that it's not worth working any other way. Even and if see, non-technical designers are, are involved.
1: I thought your, your whole reason for choosing Hamill would have been because the, for me now it seems like my, my views are dictated for me. Like they really can't get into disarray and the output is beautiful. And obviously the hooks and pins into IDs and selectors and the, the cross between your views and your CSS certainly makes a big difference. But I thought your, your real strong point was that your views are really dictated to be clean.
2: It's a side, that's a side effect. That's like a really, really good side effect. But my main the main one with Hamel as far as I'm concerned is that it forces you to think in, in semantic markup with classes and IDs and you don't have to do these mental backflips I'm talking about, like maintain a mental mapping between the CSS structure and your markup. You know, it's it, it already looks the way that you need it to look in your brain. And for, for me, at least, it's led to, you know, a lot more satisfying, a lot more fun experiences creating views.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I've had one small, uh, well, I was forced into it with a recent project I took on, uh, and I loved it. I was really, really happy uh, getting involved in him Was It was a chance to, to get paid and learn it, so that was really nice. Yeah. But since I've, you know, I've, I remember going back and talking to you in Florida and you, you know, really evangelizing it, so having a chance to ask you Face-to-face, how now having experience with it is a good thing. So I yeah, think that, so- uh, that's awesome. Josh, is, uh, is there anything else you want to ask? It would be like a super secret question or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. What Are you working on anything super secret that you just want to reveal to all our listeners on the podcast? <laughs> you know you want to.
1: Come on. Uh, this goes out like a week, two weeks from now, so it's pretty, it's pretty urgent.
2: It's pretty urgent.
1: <laughs> well, I mean that it'll it'll be out there sooner rather than say a month or a month and a half from now. It'll be out there pretty quick.
2: Oh, okay. No, well, I, I can I can let on to, to something that um that I'm working on, and I guess it's good because if it, if it creates a little expectation, it'll incentivize me to work on it. But basically, um, I'm, I'm working on a book. W- I'm trying to broaden out a little bit and try to apply, like, lessons that I've learned just over the course of my career and especially at ThoughtWorks and now with HashRocket as a consultant because I think that um, ever – I think there's not enough literature out there just about basic client management and, and sales and how to handle yourself as a consultant and really succeed. I mean, there are some good books out there, but a lot of them are older you know, and aren't reflective of modern environments. So I'm working on a book called The Art of the Power Play, and it's about maintaining the power balance between yourself and your client. Because normally it's very skewed in their direction because they're the ones that pay you. So you pretty much have to do whatever they say or they won't pay you, and you're screwed. Because right. uh, it's very hard to collect. So there's all sort, all sorts of things that you do in your behavior, starting with you know consistently doing extraordinary work. That's kind of a no brainer, to very very specific psychology of how you talk to them and how you behave when you're in front of them and how you know how you deliver good news, how you deliver bad news. All these things come together psychologically to influence the power balance between you. You know, basically I, the way I see it, you want your client to. Constantly have in the back of their mind that you could go somewhere else, you know that they are that you are not dependent on them, uh, that you could go get other clients. Um, because if they do that, they're going to respect you and they're actually going to listen to what you're saying. That's the biggest problem with being a consultant: is that oftentimes people are happy to throw tons of money at you just to agree with whatever they say. And yeah, if you want to have, yeah, if you want to have a satisfying and rewarding <laughs> experience as a consultant. And you want to do, you know, have your integrity and do good work. You have to be in a position to disagree and force change within your client's organization. You're not going to be able to do that if the power balance is skewed severely in their direction. So, in other words, you're not going to be able to be an effective consultant. So I see it as a customer service issue. You know, maintaining that power balance in, a, in an effective way is a customer service issue you know you without it you're not providing good service to your clients so yep working on a draft for that don't have it signed or anything but you know it's definitely where i'm looking to go uh in the future
1: it's interesting awesome i, I will definitely be buying that book so whoever wants to pick you up on it you got one uh one book sold already
2: okay <laughs> really cool all right guys i'm, I'm gonna you. run yeah yeah th- thanks for uh having me on the show